business class. Welcome back to Wisco Weekly. It's been a minute, but I'm back. And I have a whole new slate of some content to bring you, which let's get into it because there are some changes that have occurred. And so, and these changes are actually very great things. So let me tell you about some of these changes. The first thing is there is a Substack Now I am on Substack. You could find me at 24hourjournal.substack.com. This is where I will document everything with regards to this podcast, Wisco Weekly, as well as some other content I have building out with regards to the freelance economy. And so to that end, for my Czech listeners, for my Czech listeners, if you want to learn more about investing, I have partnered together with my Czech teacher and we are bringing to you an investing online course and you could find it at 24hourinvesting.cz. You can visit the episode page to view the links. Again, that is 24hourinvesting.cz. It's a beginner's online course and you can take it. And within four weeks, you can look to start making your first investment in the stock market. And with regards to the stock market right now, why not get in? As they say, as the cliche goes, you want to buy low and sell high. And right now, everything is definitely very, very low. Now, moving forward into this particular episode, I'm very lucky to have found this guest and to bring him to you. He is an associate professor of economics at Penn State University, and he has a very unique job in teaching economics to his students. And to that end, he uses a certain type of pedagogy, and that is some of the things that we get into in this episode. But underpinning his techniques and and what we talk about in this episode, we really start to focus on how do you teach retirement to Gen Z? How do you teach retirement to Gen Z? And so then we look at what some of the things that my guest is doing in his own classroom and to see how that can be replicated in the real world to help out Gen Z. Now, as we talk about Gen Z, a big focus of the show moving forward, okay, and this all comes together now, a big focus of the show moving forward will be to look at the freelance economy, the freelance economy. I know this space pretty well. I've been a freelancer for, I don't know, four years, five years, six years, since 2016, six years, six years. And so I'm going to be doing more episodes highlighting, educating on the freelance economy. You will see that's on 24-Hour Journal that the theme is to turn a digital nomad into a Monaco millionaire. And that is what you can expect for this podcast, Wisco Weekly. And as it is tied in with 24-hour journal and 24-hour investing. Thank you, as always, to the faithful who have tuned in. And again, I apologize for being absent for so long, but I do have some new content I will be bringing you for the rest of this year. So be sure you are subscribed to the show. Be sure you check out 24hourjournal.substack.com and you can subscribe there for free and you can follow along as I document everything on that Substack. And we got more people coming up, including the next guest, Jocelyn Davis, who will be sharing with us how to get the attention of Hollywood. 
she has been working in the Hollywood industry for the last 20 years. And so she really breaks it, breaks it down for us how to get the attention of Hollywood. Okay, let's get into today's guest, Mr. Jadrian Wooten of Penn State University. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitae, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Are you in for the market ride? Are you are you in it for the short term? Or are you in it for the long term? I mean, you have to be in it for the long term. If you're in it for the short term, tune out of the show right now. I don't want you on the show. The market is every bit volatile as we thought it would be. We're going to talk about some things that will hopefully bring some clarity to it. But undoubtedly, this whole idea of inflation, stagflation, raising interest rates, uh, rising real nominal weight or rising nominal wages, but not really real uh, wages. All of this is is contributing to, you know, what we're coming into this whole stagflation, if it indeed proves to be true. So what does this mean? I mean, there's a, an entire generation out there that may have lost a good bit of time to build some wealth and income. And that only is going to hinder their ability to you know, potentially retire in the future. There's all these talks of houses that are, you know, more untouchable uh, in terms of people being able to afford them. So I want to be able to provide some additional clarity and education on why it is important for us to look at these things now and act upon it. So that's why I am very happy to bring forth a guest who I believe has a unique insight into this matter. So business class, also, I'm sorry, one more thing, business class, stay tuned for the end of this episode where my guest and I, I'm going to ask him some bonus questions, and that will be available on Substack, 24hourjournal.substack.com. So you'll have to visit the site, subscribe, and you'll be able to watch us, actually. You'll be able to see us uh, as we go through the bonus questions. So having said that, my guest is my economic spirit animal. He's an associate professor at Penn State University within the within the, the Department of Economics. He's penned some very creative articles, such as teaching economics with scenes from Moneyball, teaching economics with scenes from Big Bang Theory, and he's also the author of the book Parks and Recreation and Economics, which is available on Amazon. He's the publisher of the Monday Morning Economist on Substack. Be sure you visit the episode page, listeners, and I will have links to his Substack. So having said that, business class listeners, please welcome the award-winning educator and researcher, Mr. Jadrian Wooten. Hello, sir. Thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate it. That was a very good introduction. I, I never know how people are going to do it, so this is always good. How did, how did I do in comparison to everyone else? It was good. You hit uh, you hit my favorite parts, so uh, no problems. Well, I, I you know specific. I, you've you've obviously written so many different articles uh, as it applies to you know, different movies, uh, TV shows. I did specifically pick Moneyball and Big Bang Theory is because I've probably watched Moneyball more than thirty times, and Big Bang Theory have watched that on repeat for again maybe another thirty times. So. I'm very familiar with those two, and maybe we'll get to reference uh, some scenes in there as a way of, of how you teach, um, you know, economics. Um, but you know, before we get there, let's let's start with some um, 
let, let's let me tee up a question here for you, which kind of gets into your background and which maybe you, you're, you won't be familiar that I will also have a background in this. But I did read that you did your dissertation in sports economics. That's right. I, I have worked in sports marketing for a good number of years, 10 plus years or so at the college athletic level specifically. So I'm very familiar with how that works, but I'm curious. I didn't get the chance to look up your dissertation. Can you tell me what was your dissertation about? And I guess the conclusions that you have been able to postulate out of it. So I did my dissertation kind of early 2010. So I was working 2010 to 2014. Um, and I, that was kind of like the peak major league soccer growth period where they're just, they're adding teams in Seattle and Portland and, uh, Houston had just gotten a team a couple of years earlier. Like they were like teams were popping up left and right. Um, and so my dissertation focuses on major league soccer primarily. Uh, so generally for an econ PhD, it's three papers that are kind of loosely related on the same topic. So my topic was, uh, major league soccer. And then I looked at two papers on essentially teams and where they're located and whether that matters and whether we plop a team in one place versus somewhere else. Uh, and then one paper was on players in major league soccer and like what nationality they were, whether they're Brazilian or German and how much that impacts their pay. So I kind of looked at it from the demand side of like the players themselves and then the actual teams. Uh, my, I will say my main paper was the player paper of, you know, a Brazilians actually get paid a little bit less in major league soccer versus like a German get paid, gets paid a little bit more. Uh, but the other two papers are actually the ones that I probably like more than the, the main paper of it. And that okay. was basically, where do you place a team? Uh, and so a lot of times when we think about, I'll say business in general, we'll keep it kind of broad to business. Uh, you often have this idea that you don't want to be right next to your competitor. Some people believe that, uh, that, you know, you want to kind of spread out the market, try to hit different spots. Uh, but there's a whole other side of the of kind of the theory that says, no, you actually want to be right next to your competitor. So like homes or Home Depot and Lowe's are right next to each other on purpose. Uh, they're not trying to split towns or cities in half. They want to be clustered right next to them. And so the question that I was really interested in is, is Major League Soccer the exact same? Should we have teams in Seattle and Portland or should we kind of space them out uh, along the way? And so what I found was it's actually better to put them right next to each other. Uh, it kind of makes both teams better off, just like kind of the same idea. Home Depot and Lowe's want to be right next to each other. So that was actually my favorite paper, my favorite result of those three. I wonder if that has... Like, would you would you state would you still hold that hypothesis a conclusion if MLS were a hundred year sport, you know, in the same way that basketball, baseball are ingrained in American sport history and culture? If so, if MLS, yeah. you know, was a hundred years old, do you think that that conclusion would still hold? So the the idea came from actually a baseball paper. Uh, somebody had done the same thing in baseball, right? So we do have a hundred years of data there. And so they were looking at kind of relocations of teams and they found the opposite. So they did find in recent transactions or recent moves of teams uh, that it was worth, they generally did worse off collectively as a league when you left a, a particular market. So mm. I think it could be different, um, right? If it, if it has been a hundred years established markets, maybe moving between two kind of a marginal city wouldn't make a very big difference. Um, but I don't know. It's soccer is so so different than baseball. You you have significantly fewer games, uh, and so each of those games really matter. And so I I'm gonna lean on if I had to pick, I'd say no. But I'm gonna guess it's a number of games 
reason, not necessarily the structure. And I wonder too, if it's also, again, the way that soccer is looked at in the United mm-hmm. States versus what baseball's looked at, right? You know, soccer is, I don't know. I, I, I am of the mindset. Again, I, I come from a sports marketing background. I'm of the mindset that soccer will not ever supersede the top three sports in America, football, basketball, baseball. I don't, I don't see soccer ever rivaling and breaking that, uh, that or cracking that top three. So having said yeah. that, I, I think then it probably would be the case that it's better than to have teams that are closer together because, mm-hmm. you know, part of it would be, would be to, you know, maybe rely on the fact that yes, you're going to have some diehard loyal fans, but at the same time, if you could just have a soccer fan, that's the, that's really the, the winning combination there, you know? Yeah. My, my kind of hypothesis on why it was positive. So I'll give you the Seattle Portland one. Cause I think that's, that's closest for you. Mm-hmm. Um, where if a team's in Seattle, but not in Portland, people from Portland aren't driving up to Seattle to go watch that. That's not their team. Yeah. Right. But okay. if you put a team in Portland, and they start playing each other. Now, when Portland goes to Seattle, some of those Portland fans are going to go to that Seattle game. And some of those Seattle fans are going to come down to Portland. Um, and so I think that's part of what's happening that is that sense. you're getting, you're getting basically fans traveling. And like, when you look at the numbers of like how much it changes, it's relatively small, but it's enough that it would be basically a traveling group of fans who would go to a close game. I mean, this is, this is uh, how I would kind of define the, uh, college athletic rivalry model, right? Oregon yep. versus Oregon State. Uh, right. you, you, they need to be within close proximity to one another because, again, you can just draw the most attention uh, mm-hmm. on that rivalry game as a result. Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny, too. The other thing I'm thinking about, too, uh, and I, I, you know, forgive me, I know that uh, this is like a faux pas saying this, but, like, there is this one uh, professor. Oh, his name is David Bell. And he wrote this book called Location Marketing. Now, I believe he teaches at University of Penn as opposed to Penn State, but I could be wrong about that. Anyhow, his book was quite interesting because he does kind of talk about how, you know, stores like Warby Parker or companies like Warby Parker that start out Mm -hmm. as an online business and eventually, you know, transition into a physical store, how, you know, it is necessary to consider that in the transition from virtual to physical proximity plays a, you know, location proximity plays a very big role on how you should base that decision. Um, Maybe obvious, but I don't know. Again, I thought as you're talking about this proximity of teams, it it just reminds me of that. Yeah. So that's actually what got me interested in it. I grew up outside of Houston and Houston had gotten the San Jose team. They'd moved to Houston, which in the move, it made really good sense. Houston's like one of the largest cities in the country. Of course, they're going to do well. But if you look at their attendance numbers, it's some of like the worst in the league. Like they just do not get people showing up. And so that was actually what kind of sparked my interest. I was like, why is nobody at these games? Uh, and then I was just, and then just the explosion of, of teams happening. Um, I think in the middle of writing that paper, the second New York team was announced. I don't think that they had started. So New York City FC hadn't played a game, but the commissioner was like, we're going to put a team in New York City, even though like the New York Red Bulls were always called New York, New York's team. Mm. Uh, so that's where it's starting to get really interesting of like where they place them. And I have been since then, I've been completely wrong on which teams are successful and not. So uh, it's, I'm really good at looking backwards and saying what's happening. Like I didn't think Atlanta would be a good spot. I was completely wrong, like 100% wrong. 
uh, on Atlanta. And so Jay, in some senses, I'm glad I'm wrong. I'm glad they're doing well. Jadren, I hate, I hate to burst your bubble, uh, <laughs> but you know, hindsight is 2020, my friends. Of yeah. course, of I'm, course I'm you're very good be at right. going backwards. I'm very good at looking backwards. Uh, yeah, no, the, I was completely wrong on the Atlanta one completely. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, look, let, let's, let's get to kind of the main topic of today. And, and that is talking about how, you know, let me use labels here. Okay how gen z well you have our current economy which is in this process of stagflation there's been you know rising nominal wages but real wages have not really been uh have not kept that the pace of of rising nominal wages so a lot of gen z are not exactly going to be in the position of getting a starter house anytime soon so that so this is the current economic landscape, and I'm sure we can add more to that, right? I want to really be able to teach and educate more Gen Zs about the idea of retirement, because for me, I was fortunate enough that my father was big on this stuff. So I already started investing in my retirement. I had no idea what I was doing at the early age of 21 or whenever my first job was, right? But you are you teach economics and you also teach it from a certain perspective so maybe let's start off with either redefine what i've assessed to be the case about how gen z looks at retirement add some more stuff on it and how do we address this problem uh no that's that's a good way to start this so how do we address the problem is uh, let me go. I'll start with the second part, right? How do we address okay. it? Um, because it is something that I think people aren't thinking about. Um, and I, I wouldn't even go as far as saying not even think about retirement. I, what I see is not even thinking about a year down the road, six months down the road. Um, a lot of what I'm seeing, at least among my students is a, is a very heavy dose of like, I want things now. Um, and that has that has real implications. Uh, again, beyond the retirement part, has real implications of right. Can I make it four months through a semester and finish out um, just eating uh, on a college campus? And I think that has in, that ends up having spillover effects in the sense of right. If I'm if I'm struggling in four months and then in eight months I'm I'm also struggling because I'm starting from behind and that's messing me up. And so it's it's like you're kind of constantly uh, swimming across a, a wave that just keeps pushing you back. And no matter how much you're struggling or how much you're advancing, that wave just kind of keeps pushing you further and further back. How to fix that? Um, there's some like there's some behavioral stuff you can do. There's some there's some kind of forced savings. So I think about what works really. I'm not gonna say really nicely, but it kind of forces a lot of Americans to save. Is right taking it out of people's checks immediately, right? Like the 401k model of I'm gonna take this from you. You don't even know you have it but I'm going to take it and hold it for you so that you at least have some retirement. So I think about that when I first started, even when I started here, I, they, I just got a paycheck. I was super happy. Um, and they're just taking money out and I have no idea, but I feel like, you know, that part is missing uh, among a lot of young people. And it would be really interesting if there was some sort of mechanism banking account. I don't know if it's a college based system where like colleges are doing it, where, you're naturally getting that removal and you don't even know it. Um, and so you're kind of reframing and re-anchoring how much money you actually have each month to spend. Uh, so I usually, I usually try to start with that part, right? Like how do we get them to save a little bit? And then we can start saying, how do we actually invest that later? 
So I, I appreciate this. I think you're looking at it also from a tactical perspective, which yeah. I would be too. I think if we look at it even more from, a, you could call it a strategic perspective, right? Again, I think this is where it's like, I would not have, have, well, maybe I would have, right? I, I, would, I would look at a movie, pop culture. I would look at Moneyball. And again, maybe at the age of 25, there were things that came a little bit more naturally to me and things that did not come more naturally to me. But there are lessons to be learned in that. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, well, what are some of the what are some of these things in pop culture that these Gen Zs, these students are, you know, it's constantly in their face, but they just don't make that click to see, ah, uh, that's an economic lesson. That's a that's a personal finance mm -hmm. lesson, you know, that I should be uh, that I should make note of. H how do we inspire more of that? I mean, what, what have you done? Yeah. What, what, have you, what have you done with like teaching economics with Moneyball? That's yeah. Like, so the, well, the Moneyball is, one, is the one that's in the back of my head, right? So that's the one I, I, I always go back to because if you think about just the storyline of Moneyball, right? It's that you have to make decisions and do the best that you can. And oh yeah, by the way, you don't have that much money and you need to try to be successful when you don't have that much money. And so I think the storylines are there and the struggle is getting people to realize that they're going through that same thing. They have a fixed budget that they have to make decisions that they need to, um, they need to do the absolute best that they can given their conditions and try to win and be successful in life. Uh, so I think those are there. I can get small stories to work, right? So like in my classes, I I'm really good at taking like little pieces and saying, here's one concept that'll hopefully make your life a little bit better. So you actually, you, you kind of mentioned it earlier and I kind of, I'll squeeze it in just things like opportunity costs, right? Like if you, if you purchase something, if you make a decision, you're giving up something. And so I, I try to get those little micro moments of getting people to recognize, Hey, if I go out and I add bacon to this burger, it seems like a really minor thing, but like, there's an opportunity cost that like, do you really need it? Kind of come back. The big picture stories, like the, right. The whole money ball story that's harder to get people to, to kind of consume that whole story, even through a movie. I think they look at it and they go, that's a cool story, but that doesn't apply to me. And then they go away. I'm like, it does. It, it is your life. Um, so it's, it's hard. I, I don't know a good answer for how do you get the big stories to work. Well, actually, I mean, let's, let's talk about this a little more because I think this is super interesting that, you know, you brought up the example of opportunity costs. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe either from a, a personal standpoint or an academic standpoint, like, you have your students uh, who are with you for, are you on a semester or a quarter system? Semester. We're on a semester. Okay. So you have yeah. them for a semester, four or five months-ish. And, but look, you have full control of your curriculum and you can only focus on three economic lessons. What are the three you're like, okay, kids, this is the only thing we're doing in, in, in this semester. Yeah. So there's three. Um, I, so normally I say I have two that I really care about, but you're going to give me a third one. So I like that. Okay. Uh, so my number, my number one I, that I think is the most important concept is opportunity costs are real. Um, and it's not even, and I, that's the hard one to get across in the beginning. Cause I'm sorry, Jadrian, say that one. Yeah. Opportunity costs. What was the what, what opportunity costs are real. Are, are real. Got so it. Okay. Are they are, they are real things. So, right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That is very hard to get students to realize on a college campus because people are giving you, Hey, you know, there's free, there's free pizza at this meeting. Hey, come over here and get a free t-shirt. Hey, come get this free Frisbee. 
And I, I immediately, none of that is free. Uh, you're, you're either waiting in, waiting in line to get that free item. You are giving away your data and your information. Like you are doing something, you are costing something uh, in order to do that. So one is definitely opportunity costs are real. And I would love for students to just recognize every decision that they make, every minute that they're spending doing something, there's a cost associated with that. Uh, the second one, very closely linked to that, is uh, that opportunity costs increase as you do more of those things. So the longer you wait in line, the more costly that is. Uh, the more you are trying to get that free shirt, the more costly it is. Uh, and so getting people to recognize that like, you know, you want to spend a little bit of your time, that's okay. But maybe you shouldn't be spending lots of your time doing one thing unless it has a really big payoff. Uh, spending, I, I see students wait in line an hour to get a shirt. And I'm like, that's dumb. Uh, or waiting in line an hour to get uh, a free ice cream cone. Like you could, there's so much more stuff you could do. Just pay the four bucks. Well, unless, uh, let me play yeah. devil's advocate here, right? Sure. Unless, of course, the student values that ice cream cone such mm -hmm. that the opportunity cost of not being in that line is less. Yes. I, but I think one of the problems is people don't value their time correctly. I think people... Mm -hmm. A lot of people think their time is doesn't cost that much. That you know, it, oh, it's just my time. It's just an hour, uh, but you can get a lot of stuff done in an hour. Um, not even just I, I. We always like the economic standpoint. Like you could be working and earning ten dollars an hour. Not even that. Um, the most common thing we get uh, when we hear from like so I read a lot. I love reading. Almost everybody tells me I don't have time to read, or you hear it from people who uh, want to go to the gym or work out more, and they say I don't have time to go work out. I think once we get older, we like we start to value our time a little bit more. Um, but I think if I could really get young people to recognize that their time is actually really valuable, they can achieve a lot of really cool stuff. Well, um, I think one one yeah. an, an incentive that a lot of students and Gen Zers uh, are really motivated by is traveling. But mm -hmm. it is something that obviously requires money. Yeah. And it just it, it, that, you know, on one hand, again, it's a motivator, but then is it enough of a motivator for them to actually put things in action? Because, mm -hmm. again, at some point, if you decide uh, what our, was this May 2022, that, hey, look, I'd like to travel to Europe this summer and you don't put anything in place and it's already July. And it's like, well, I think I could pull it off. And then to your point, the opportunity cost has increased because now if you look to book mm -hmm. a flight or anything like that, now everything is more expensive. You didn't prepare for anything. Right. It's, it's right. It's almost like the, so I was, I tell them it's the opposite of compounding interest. It's, it's compounding costs. Uh, if you can start saving and start focusing on things today, you're going to be much better off later. If you keep waiting because you're doing something else instead, those costs are about to get really expensive if you want it later in life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then that's, that's really the third one. So the, the third one comes up with this idea of thinking about things on the margin, uh, think about things much smaller, right? I want to go to, I want to go to Europe this summer. That starts today with taking a dollar and setting a dollar aside. Making small changes today has really big impacts later in life. And so there, I would say the three are very connected. The two are, the first two are very, very connected. Uh, but that third one is just thinking about really small marginal changes can have a really big impact. Uh, I, I love the third one. I can relate to that one so much. I, I would say I specifically have adopted more of this kind of live in the margins mindset. Mm -hmm. Uh, f about five years ago, and it has changed my behavior in a way that is like, look, stop going for the big goal. Stop going for the, you know, even if I am thinking long term, stop going for that five year goal and trying to achieve it in two years, right? And again, that was that whole 
I don't know what you want to call it, this hedonism, this immediate gratification yeah. of trying to get that dopamine rush. Uh, but no, it's, it's like, okay, look, let's baby steps. Let's, let's, let's build, let's build not just a website, but this particular website. And mm-hmm. in order to do that, let's, 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 let's come up with a concept. Let's test it out. Let's make sure there's the right messaging that eventually that, you know, even those kind of business lessons then eventually translated in, into money where like, even now I'm a, you know, fairly active investor and trader. I've, I've gone back to doing more trading. That's the same thing. Okay. Dennis, don't try to go for the 10% ROI today. Just go for the 1%, the 2%. Let's see how everything goes in the market. So I love, I love that third lesson there. I, I mean, let's talk about that some more. What are some, of, what are some of the most effective ways to teach that? Uh, yeah, so a lot, actually the way I do it, I do it in the very first day of class. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be cheesy, but when I add it up, it kind of works out. I think it'll work out too. And kind of like the investing stance. So I teach a 50 minute class and uh, right. Penn State's a very big campus. Lots of, it's a big class. So it's like 700 people. So at the end of class, it's 700 people want to come in and 700 people want to go out. And so I told them at the very beginning, I say, you're going to be very tempted in those last couple minutes to start packing up, trying to get out, go away really quickly. Cause you have other things you want to do. But the way I kind of phrase it to him, as I say, look, if you take one minute of a 50 minute class, we meet three times a week. I go, that's three minutes. And we meet for 15 weeks. I go, that's 45 minutes. I go leaving early one minute every day is an entire class period. And I go, think about how much we're going to cover in a whole class. You miss one whole class by leaving just, and I always, I do it just one minute. Cause that's always the answer, right? Like, oh, it's just one day. It's just one cheat meal. Uh, it's right. Any of those sorts of things we try to commit to, it's just one, uh, but just one adds up if you do it a lot. And so I try to get them to recognize that even on the, a minute might seem really small, but it can have really big impacts later on in life. And so the, the trade-off, my incentive that I give them is stick with me that minute every day, I'll give you a full day at the end of the semester. I'll just cancel the very last day. And so I say, stick with me for 43 minutes and I'll give you that last one. I, that's usually enough of a payoff for them. Uh, and I think it has those real sort of lessons, right? Save a little bit now, just keep making those marginal changes. And at the end, you'll have something saved up really nicely that you didn't think about before. And it's not that painful in the beginning when you're just giving up a little bit. Well, if if we could dive into this deeper than here, Jadrian. Yeah. So like, okay, uh, g- give me the data on this. So you have a class yep. of 700 and mm-hmm. you introduce a concept like this, like over however many days or weeks, you know, what has been the end result? Do you get 700 in on January 1st and on May 30th when classes are ended, 700 go out? Definitely not. Um, So they usually forget about my promise about six to eight weeks in. So in the beginning, they're very- That's still pretty effective, yeah. Yeah, so about six to eight weeks in is usually when they start packing up two to three minutes early. Like Like they've been good the whole time and then I don't know what's happening then. Uh, they, they start to leave two to three minutes early. Uh, and I stopped them. I tried to shut them down real fast. I said, we made a deal on day one. We go the whole time and then you get paid off later. I said, if you start skipping out, you're going to lose that payoff at the end, regardless of how much you put in at the beginning. Uh, and so usually at that point, the next day is usually better. We're back, we're back on our normal track. Uh, so it does wane. You, you can kind of see that they're all in and it starts to wane a little bit and then I have to bring them back and then I can get them to stick with it. Usually. I, I, I when you, you tell me of this scenario and I think about, I think of like a getting into a poker hand with someone and, 
you know, a fourth streak comes out and yeah. you know, the flop already came out. The flop is the six to eight weeks. And then all of a sudden fourth street comes out and you can mm-hmm. see that the opponent there is like wavering They're you know, or maybe they're coming in strong and then boom, Jadrian comes in and like re-raises and it just, it, it yeah. gets the attention of the other person. And it's like, Oh, okay. Wait a second. Maybe yeah. I need to pay attention on what's going on now. You know, does he have something? So it's really tough here because uh, we get, we have those false springs uh, in March. So it's real cold and gross in January. And then it starts to look a little nicer. That's when they want to leave. And so I have to remind them that, hey, April, at the very end, it's very nice. You would like a whole day off in April. You don't want to do that now. Uh, and that's usually enough to bring it back. I just have to remind them that there is a payoff happening at the very end. Mm, I like that. I like that. Um, to, so tell me more about uh, some of, I guess, I'm really interested about like more classroom data that mm-hmm. you've you've been going through because i mean I, I think it'd be a fair to say that uh how old are your college students in particular that you teach uh mostly 18 a lot of them are first year freshmen okay so i i don't i'm pretty certain that an 18 year old is going to think relatively the same as a 25 year old you know maybe it's until you get to your later 20s especially yeah. your 30s that you really start to make changes on your habits so Give me some other examples that you go through in your classroom that you have found to be an effective way to communicate, uh, again, this idea of opportunity cost, opportunity cost uh, increases over time and margin. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. So when you made that comment about a 25-year-old is very similar, I was thinking about myself and I'm like, when did I start really like changing my behavior. And I think okay. you're right. I think it's around 30 that is when I really like realized what I was doing. Um, well, well so and, I tr- and, and what were you doing out of curiosity? Like what, what was the trigger for you? My main trigger, I got burned out. Um, I, I really, it, it happened like a little bit before the pandemic. I would just, I felt like I was going 12, 10 to 12 hour days, constantly working, trying to be like the person. And I was like, I'm not, it's not working. Uh, I don't have the energy to keep going at this level. And then I scale back. I started to realize like to get morbid for a little bit, I'm going to die eventually. Uh, and I don't want to die in my office. Um, I like, I, I would like to spend time with family and my dogs and my friends. Uh, and it was like, there was a moment where it finally clicked and I was like, yeah, I, I want a life. That would be really nice. Uh, and then that's when I started changing stuff. And then I actually got much more productive because I recognized we could take this back to what we were just talking about there's opportunity costs. And I was burning myself out day by day. I was not productive in the ninth, 10th, 11th hour of the day because the cost of working that late was just just such a grind. And so I scaled way back. It's kind of when you hear these stories about the people who do like the, the, the 10 hour work weeks and stuff, like personal stuff. It was the same thing. I scaled way back and I was just, I realized I was so much more productive each day because I was well rested every day. I had a fresh mind every day. And I was getting more stuff done in less time uh, than what I was committing to it. So well, I, I do share that story with my students, uh, but they, they don't necessarily resonate with it. Well, I, I think one of the big things with that, Jadrian, is like, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm 43. So like, I, I do feel that even though I, I'm, I'm in my 40s, I somehow do look at Gen Z as mm-hmm. like, you guys are super young and while you guys are super creative, you, you guys just don't know a lot. Mm-hmm. 
but that doesn't mean you you can't know it. I mean, I do think that because of technology, yeah. they are way smarter about things. Like they are learning way more things. It's interesting. Even a neighbor of mine, uh, uh, my neighbor's son, who's eighth in eighth grade and, and going to be a, a freshman coming up, you know, he's already talking about things like investing, and it's mm-hmm. like. I was not talking about that. And, you know, of course he doesn't have, he doesn't know all the nuances, but he's yeah. already introduced to it. Right. I, I, I think that there's these moments of self-reflection that mm-hmm. is being lost on Gen Z where they they are just a little bit caught up in, again, what is, what is, what am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing at lunchtime? What am I doing at dinner time? And I, I mean, again, I guess this is more of a plea. It's like, I just, I wish there was a, a little bit more thought. I wish there was more reflection first, and then a little bit more thoughts on being more intentional with their actions. So I have something for you. I, exactly, I'm glad you said what you're doing at lunchtime, because that actually helps with the example that I give them in class. So usually by the time the first homework's coming up, I, I have a moment that I stop and I talk to them and I say, in the course of your day, what part of the day do you value free time? I say, you know, it's probably not 8 a.m. Like you're probably in class. Uh, It's probably not lunchtime. I say it's it's probably like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. That's when you're playing video games with your friends. That's when you're going to parties. Uh, That's what like that kind of nighttime college experience is a very big part of the American college experience. And I say that's the most valuable part of your day. And I said, I know what a lot of you are doing at 11 o'clock. You're doing your homework which is actually what you don't want to be doing at 11 o'clock. You want to be hanging out with friends, but you're doing homework at that time. And I, and then I kind of flash back and I say, the time that you are not very productive is maybe around lunchtime. I said, look, I walk through the dining halls and I walk through our campus cafeteria. And I say, a lot of you are sitting there by yourself and you're watching Netflix and you're watching a, a TV show during the least valuable part of your day you're not doing anything that you could be doing something. And I said, all you have to do is take that homework and move it to lunchtime, work on it while you're doing lunch. And I go, that opens up your nighttime and you can spend all your time hanging out with friends, playing video games. Don't, don't be spending 11 PM uh, working on your econ homework. Do that at 12 PM, do that at 1 PM. And I go, it'll completely change your life because you'll realize that when you value time with your friends the most, you're actually spending time with your friends versus watching TV during the day. So it kind of goes in that opportunity cost section, but it's that same idea, that idea of like self-reflection, like what am I doing with my day? How am I dividing up my hours? I hate that I get emails from students at like 11 o'clock on a Friday, not because they're waiting till the deadline, but the fact that they're wasting their Friday nights on my stuff, do it earlier, do it, do it during the day. Uh, but self-reflection, I think is super important for a lot of them. A, I will say that you're probably in the minority because it sounds like you're encouraging partying, which is, hey, right on. <laughs> hey, that's, right, that's uh, I just don't want them to do it. Their homework's not good at 11, right? Like, well, uh, video, I, 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 played, I played video games. That's what I was doing. Well, I, but I mean, you're, you're on to something here where, again, like look at this from, I don't know if I could go that in depth on this, but, you know, look at it from this kind of uh, neurological level of how, you know, your brain is not going to be that optimal when you've already been awake for 12 hours. And again, especially if you're not stimulating your brain and you're just watching Netflix during these downtimes, you're, you're going to be very apathetic throughout the day. 
And then finally, you have to do this homework, which you're not motivated to do. And it's just going to reflect in the actual final product of either you submitting a homework. Hell, even if it's a, excuse my language, but even if it's a goddamn email, right? It's like an email, it just looks like a bunch of words put together. There's no thought. And I'm sure you as a professor, like, I don't know what you're asking me, actually. (laughs) Like, are you, do you you just want to blog to me and like recite your feelings? Is that what you're trying to do? Because I don't know what you're asking. Yeah, if I could just get them to just re it's that same right, rearrange stuff, think about opportunity costs. I go, imagine all your friends are playing video. So for me, it was Guitar Hero. That was like the big thing whenever I was in college. I go, all your friends are playing video games down the hallway and you're sitting over there drawing a graph and trying to calculate uh, a triangle. I go, you spend time with your friends. And I go, but you gotta do that homework earlier. Okay, so actually, so you bring up video games, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let, let me bring up some biases here. Video games is obviously going to be more particular to your male audience. Mm -hmm. So how do you look at your female students and being able to impart these three economic lessons? So, yeah, so I usually, right, I definitely use video games as the example. Uh, A lot of it is very similar, right? So it's, it's things of what do you want to be doing with your free time? Um, whether, the, and I, I usually start with just hanging out with friends because that's really what they talk to me about, uh, of just being, you know, down in the common room of a dorm going out. I tried, I try to limit the examples of them like breaking the law, right? I don't talk about them going to frat parties and stuff like that, even though I know that that's happening. Um, Wait, how, so I how, usually, how's, go, how's going to a frat party breaking the law? Uh, well, because they're under 18 or they're under 21. Um, I guess as long as you go, right. So yeah, you could go, you could just go, right. You just have yeah. to show up. Yeah, uh, I did not do that. I, I was definitely, I was too nerdy to be doing that. Okay. Uh, so right, I usually right. just frame it as hanging out with your friends in the beginning. Um, and then I'll, I'll drop the other part in there later. Oh, let me, let me put you on the spot here then. I mean, sure. you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, if you, if you do look at the general personalities of women over time, like again, going back long, long time ago, women tend to be more social creatures they are more interested in people than boys who are interested in things. So because women like to congregate with one another, I don't know, what's, what's a game? What's an, a game that women can play in which little do they know they're actually learning about economics? I used to, but here's the problem is I haven't played games in a long time. Because uh, I, I turned into a reader at some point where I stopped playing games and watching TV. Uh, where I started reading books instead. Um, you know, I think honestly, almost any of the, any video game, any games that people are playing has some sort of economic concept to it in terms of strategy, decision-making. Um, I just don't know that's enough true. about different games to really kind no, of that's, I mean, pick but, one. Well, I, I, if anything, I, I think you, you, like, that's it. it, it it's a yeah. game itself. It's like a game. What, yeah. what game, what game can they be playing? Because a game inherently has these opportunity costs. Mm-hmm. It has the opportunity cost that increases over time. It has margins. It has trade-offs. It has all these things. And how well can they play the game? Now, I guess that's another problem right there is that yeah. are, is, is the person playing the game suited to play that game well? Which, again, I think this is another aspect that gener- generationally speaks to, um, well, maybe not generation, the age group of 20-year-olds it's common that it's hard for them to, again, subscribe to these ideas of retirement because mm-hmm. that just might not be 
that just that's just not their player. That's just not mm-hmm. their player persona. So, well, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I, I think you're right, and I think it, it goes back to right. We want things now, so I think about things like TikTok. Like I don't know anything about how that stuff works. I know I know what it is and kind of the purpose, um, right? But it's it's what's happening now, and then you kind of forget that you know you're on TikTok all day scrolling, and you've completely forgotten that you know you just wasted a bunch of time. I think it, it lines up with a lot of the stuff you're seeing with retirement things, where you're doing so much stuff now that you forget that eventually that's going to come back and and play out. I think sneaking that stuff in. So I know that there are economists and professors who have, there's a, there's a guy, one of my friends from grad school, he's a, a TikTok economist. And his whole thing is how do I sneak econ into your feed? So you'll learn a little bit, right? Can we get you just to do a little bit of it? Uh, he's been very successful with it. I, I could never do that. I'm not, I'm not good enough to be on. I'm not, I'm not on my phone. I'm reading all the time, uh, well, but he's, he's really good at it. Well, actually, and that actually takes us to this next section that I want to get into with you because you, it seems like you subscribe to the idea and you've researched it and you have probably uh, have a lot of trial and error lessons that you could help everyone else with in terms of your experience. But business class listeners, in order to hear what Mr. Jadrian Wooten has to say, you will have to subscribe on Substack. So Mr. Wooten, what I want to get to is you do pride yourself in using digital media as a part of your teaching pedagogy. It, it almost seems as if that should be obvious, but you, I, you have definitely been intentional with it because throughout your writings, uh, you, you do it. So maybe let's attack it from two angles here. The first is why for you has, why have you found it to be so important to incorporate interactive media, digital media, maybe you could even clarify what that is yeah, for us. And then the second thing is like, what are some of your best tips and practices that you've learned that, you know, this way works, this way, not as much and so forth and so on. Hey, business class, if you want to watch, not listen, but watch the bonus segments of this show, go to 24hourjournal.substack.com. Become a paid subscriber and you'll not only get this bonus segment with Jadrian Wooten, but you'll get all bonus segments of all future guests. 24 Hour Journal is a Substack publication, which means it is independently publishing. And so if you like what you are hearing on on this podcast, if you like what you are seeing on 24 Hour Journal, then I recommend that you support my team and I as we continue to bring you the work and the education and the knowledge to help help the freelancers of this economy. Become a paid subscriber on 24hourjournal.substack.com. Here is Jadrian one last time sharing the economic lessons he's learned while traveling. Well, Jadrian, so maybe just the last question here for you then. Like, uh, So it seems as if... uh, you know, respectfully, you are late to the travel game. Seems like uh, traveling for you. Well, at least based on your website, it seems like, again, you, you didn't do a lot of traveling early on. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's okay. I thought yeah. you meant that I haven't traveled much. I was like, I've traveled. I got all these flags over here. Well, yeah. that's, that's actually yeah. what I want to know. And it seems like, I, I actually, I forgot the counts. Um, you, you have, a, 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 you know, on your websites, you have how many countries you visited there. And you also state that, one of the things that you love about visiting countries is the lessons that you learn by traveling to that country. Which country stands out the most so far 
of a country you visited that you learned the most, you know, from an economic perspective out of that visit? I'm, I'm like going through the map in my head of, of mm. where I've been. So I, I'll, I'll buy myself some time. Uh, I am late to the traveling because I went through grad school. I just did not travel at all in grad school. Uh, so I really started traveling like when I was 27 or so. That's uh, so I, yeah, it, it's not bad, but it's, I, I didn't do like, I did a study abroad, but it was to Mexico. So I never did like the European vacation where you backpack through Europe and stuff like that. So I, I skipped over a lot of that stuff. Um, okay. Country that I've learned the most from traveling. Or you found I the was, most fascinating. I mean, like what, what was the yeah. most impressionable traveling experience for you? That again, you, you were like, man, there are some great economic lessons that you learned out of that. I'll give. I'll, I'll, it's I'll, okay. I'm narrowing it down to two. I've got two in my head, so I want to. I'll, I'll I'll give you mine, and and uh, for 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 listeners of the show, they they may know a little bit of this already. But so for me, um, Brno, Czech Republic, which is the second most populated city in the Czech Republic, I have seen that that city, uh, which is I think there's about. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna average it out to say five hundred thousand. Uh, people that reside in that city. It might be 700,000 or it might be 300,000. I, I forget exactly now. But anyhow, I've, I've witnessed that city over the last 13 years just become younger and more vibrant and more educated. But I've also seen that there's not a whole lot of economic opportunities that reside there. So what happens? People have to go to Prague. If they go to Prague, now the thing is, is that Prague is only so big. There's only so many jobs that are open. So then they they have to continue to branch out. Germany is, you know, Germany and Austria are kind of like the easy answers that Czech people would give me in terms of like, okay, well, where would you go that you could, you know, become as wealthy as possible? Again, Germany and Austria are kind of the givens after that. However, as I'm seeing with Gen Z, they don't they're not so much focused on building that wealth and income yet. So they would, they're okay with going to places like Portugal, South of Spain, Mexico, Turkey, places where they'd rather get the experience than this, you know, against making money kind of thing. So that's, Brno for me is like that economic traveling lesson that I've learned so much about a lot of the world and, and, the, and specifically the Czech culture. So I... Yeah. So as you said that, that reminded me of a trip to, I went to Puerto Rico um, and we went to one of the islands off of Puerto Rico. Uh, I think it's called Vieques. And just like, it was weird. It was just a very strange experience being in Puerto Rico because like in my mind, I'm like, this is part of America, but it doesn't, it, I don't feel like I'm, I'm in the United States. Like it was very, it was a very, very strange thing where right, we're paying with dollars, but it's, it, it, we're by, we're like we we are talking to American citizens, but it does it doesn't feel like anywhere else I've I've ever been. That's we were going to this this tiny little island. Uh, if you ever have a chance to look this up, it's I'll say it's a fascinating story, but it's awful in the grand scheme of like what's happened in the United States. Uh, this it's a little island off of Puerto Rico that they used to use as a bomb testing facility. So that we just dropped bombs on this tiny little island for like years. Um, but there's not very many people who live on that island. I think there was only like three hotels and two restaurants. Um, and so it's, it was that same idea, like 
you either worked in that area or you immediately left and went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, I, so I think about, so the two, the two choices I was, I was trying to pick was Puerto Rico, but then I was getting into that weird, like, is that an international travel or not? So I, I would say Puerto Rico from like a development standpoint. No, that, um, I mean, that works. It, it doesn't yeah, have to be international, right. but yeah, so, I, yeah. so I would say from, from that point where you, you look at, it's just even fascinating from an economic standpoint uh, that the the average income in Puerto Rico is is as low as it is, and all of those individuals immediately have the opportunity to come to the United States if they want the continental United States, and they could earn twice as much money if they just moved here instead of living there, but they don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And trying to figure out like why don't they? Right, like it's a the the culture part of Puerto Rico is so different than everywhere else, um, right? You have friends and family, not even like language stuff, but like just from a development standpoint of like you have a place that is, that has the potential to be just like any other state, but is held back. Um, so I was thinking about that and I was actually contrasting it with the exact opposite, which would be Switzerland. Um, so I've been to Switzerland twice and almost everyone there is trilingual, uh, because the Northern part is they, they do their Swiss German, but then they also have German high German. Then there's, uh, the, Western part that they speak French and then the Southern part speaks Italian, but almost everybody speaks English. So I, most people can speak two of the ones in the country and also English. And just like that interconnectedness of this one country is so fascinating because those are normally things we would associate with like not being as successful if you have to speak multiple languages, right? We want this like one central language that everybody functions and that there's no translation issues but like they make it work with three official languages. Well, I guess they have four because they have Romanish too, but that's so small that they don't really speak that. Um, so that was like the exact opposite. You have this like incredibly advanced country that is actually speaking multiple languages rather than like their core language. They have their own currency rather than using the Euro. Like the, everything's a little bit different, but they're like super successful uh, in doing it. Jadrian, you hit on something there that Actually, I, I, you know, the the hair, the little hair that I have in my arms stood up <laughs> and that was how learning languages opens up opportunities. And I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. I, I don't know what is, what is it about either the, you know, English speaking nations or American nations or Amer- the American mm-hmm. culture that has somehow indoctrinated in us that's. Yes, just be masters of English and the rest of the world will just get on your back and, you know, follow you kind of thing. You know, for myself, I've been because of my wife, I've been learning uh, Czech language. I've been learning that for the last seven, eight years now. And so learning Czech has opened up this new possibility of also doing work in the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, And which is why, you know, just a little shameful plug in that is. I've developed an online investing course for people of the Czech Republic. And a lot of that it kind of stems from, again, my experience visiting Brno and seeing how it's evolved, seeing how there's that younger population that doesn't necessarily want to leave, but they now have the ability to access the global market. They have fintech apps that weren't available 13 years ago. So, and, and again, it was because I've been able to learn the language and live, you know, again, visit and communicate and see everything. And that has opened up opportunities for me. So that's mm-hmm. spot on right there. I love that actually. Yeah. Uh, no, I, it's, it's amazing to see that country. I, I, in my mind, I'm like, you have three completely different languages and you all speak English. Like, just the fact that most of them speak three to four languages is just impressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Uh, JJ, what do you have coming up for you? You, you? you have the Monday morning economist Substack. Uh, tell us more about what, what we can see on that uh, in the coming months. So I have been writing that since the start of the pandemic. Uh, I, I had free time, so I was like, oh, well, I'll write a newsletter. Everybody else is starting a Substack, so I decided to start one too. Um, each, each Monday is some sort of topic from the past week that stood out that I, I said, like, how can I apply economics to this? Uh, I usually make that decision Sunday night before I go to bed. And then Monday morning, I'm furiously typing to come up with it. Um, this week, you know, I, I bookmark a lot of stuff online that I see. So anything that doesn't make it Monday, there's a Tuesday version. That's just like other links that like didn't make the cut. Like here are five other things that I really like. Uh, so there's, it's kind of a one-two punch on the Monday, Tuesday stuff. Um, I have not decided on Mondays yet, uh, but I, something always pops up. There's always some story that happens either during the week that I, I skipped over when I was reading it, that comes later, um, that I try to try to squeeze out. But that well, for now, that's what I've got on the horizon. I, I keep trying to come up with other things to do with the with the newsletter. Well, let me give you let me give you a helpful tip on a <laughs> on a topic uh, that would be most interesting, and that is the economic lessons learned from the three language speaking country of Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, no, that would I could definitely I I there's plenty of topics. It's I think it, you know this from podcasting, right? There's plenty of interesting people to talk to and plenty of things to talk about. It's always hard each week to pick that one that I want to do. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Jadrian, very cool to to meet you and wrap out with you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, I'll publish all the relevant links on the episode page for you. Uh, Continue to teach our youth, sir, and uh, teach them more about money and economics and how, you know, I, America, as I'm coming to realize, is still the greatest economy in the world, and we should be using that to our advantage and also be charitable in our efforts uh, as a result of that. So. Business class, thanks for tuning into this episode of Whisker Weekly as we end every episode. Cheers, Prost, Lachain, Kipis, Nastravi, Salut, Kampai, Mobru, Tutins, Gambe, Yamas, Nastrovi, Vol, Salute, and Saudi to the customer experience.